This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Reading from chapter 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. God, may we celebrate your scripture. May we celebrate your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start a little different this morning, so bear with me. With a different reading. I promise it's going somewhere. Though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. One of my favorite stories of all time, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Uh, This moment, it follows the killing of Aslan and there's an exchange that happens when Aslan comes back to life. Now, if that was a spoiler for you, if you've never seen or read that book I'm sorry, but in all fairness, the book came out in 1950, and the movie 15 years ago, and so that's on you. (laughs) But what happens here is, is Aslan, he dies, but he also is resurrected. And yes, you should be going there with your mind. You should be seeing and putting together the connections. This interaction, this, this, this line, the part that I just read, it happens This morning for us, right after he has risen, and he's talking to Susan and to Lucy, explaining what was going on. The witch, though sneaky, wise, and cruel, she knew a lot. Though she had taken over Narnia and turned Narnia into this frozen hell, though she had turned every Narnian into her slave, under her rule, in her dominion, there was a deeper magic Still, if she only knew what had happened before, and if she only knew what would happen after. So 
So in our reading this morning in Romans, Paul picks up on this imagery uh, that has us thinking a lot about kingdoms and dominions. Uh, And because of this, my imagination goes to Narnia and it goes to Lewis. Talking about kingdoms and dominions sometimes can be lost on us here in the States. Uh, We are a nation. We don't have a king or a kingdom. We are not British. Uh, Our neighbors are North Carolina, Georgia, and Tennessee. We are not moving from country to country. To move from one state, if we're talking about interstate travel, we're talking about not carrying our passports with us. We're not getting stamps when we move into those foreign countries, though they may feel. We are one nation, right? This is our reality. We sometimes don't think about this because we don't live in it every single day. And when we think about kingdoms and dominions, when, when the Bible talks about kingdoms and dominions, I think some people might have an upper hand on us. So my hope this morning is that we can capture this and capture what we're talking about and what the readers of Romans would have heard this morning. See, the majority of the world, when they think about kingdoms, they're thinking about their neighbors. They're thinking about uh, places with distinct lands, places with distinct borders, places with distinct, distinct identities. Paul and these early Christians would have thought that too. They would have been aware of this too. There was an awareness of distinct kingdoms. There was an awareness of distinct dominions, especially for the Jewish people who were known throughout the world for the kingdoms of David and Solomon at one point. And Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to the church that was in the belly of the beast. They were in Rome. Rome was the ruling party here. They were the conquering party Rome was the entire world as they knew it. And so everywhere and every land that Rome touched uh, was under their rule. It was under their dominion, under their empire, right? And because of that, anyone or any place that was in the Roman Empire followed the Roman way. Their way of doing, their way of being, their way of organizing, their way of governing, and also their class structure, which comes into play here, which Paul draws on. Rome essentially, now broad brush here, they had three parties, three classes. The first class, the upper class, was uh, the patrician class, the ruling class, the nobility, the senators, the politicians. Uh, The second class was the plebeians, the artisans, the farmers, the peasants. Often uh, this party was connected to the upper party. Uh, They were their patrons, right? They placed themselves under those patrons freely on their own free accord, many for protection, many for work, but the key words here being freely because they were citizens of Rome and they chose to do so. The third class was the slave class. And this is the class that Paul really takes hold of in this writing and reading. They were the property of the patrons. They were slaves. They didn't have rights. They were property. They lived under the absolute power of the patrician class, right? They were under their rule, under their reign, right? They were separated from their families, their tribes, their identities, their sense of honor, their sense of dignity, their sense of self-determination for their bodies and their time. They were forced to do whatever they were asked. They were slaves of the upper class here. You see this. This was their harsh reality. This was their cold and frozen world. This was the only world that they knew. For the slave class in Rome, it would feel like an eternal winter with 
no Christmas, right? And so uh, these Romans hearing this in the sixth chapter, uh, we're going to see this imagery that Paul is pulling, and they're going to have categories for it. My hope is that we can also grab a hold of what Paul is talking about. So the Romans, in the previous chapters, the two chapters prior to this, they start with this reality, and Paul's building this case. In Romans 3.21, it says it's putting us all on the same plane, setting the scene. We are all universally in this position. We are sinners in need of salvation. And because of this, we are under sin's dominion. Here you see Paul personify sin as a monarch, which makes sense of things when we read chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Because of the first Adam, we are now under sin's reign and rule, right? Under sin's dominion. You see that as us being pictured as slaves to sin. St. Augustine once said of our situation here that we are under sin. When we are under sin as our patron, you following? Uh, We are its slave. We are in its dominion, its reign. We were not able not to sin was the word that he put to that. Now, you with me? That was a double negative. It could have been confusing. I'll say it again. We were not able not to sin. Where we were under the cold and harsh tyranny of sin. Salvation then, as Paul talks about it, coming through Christ was a deliverance from the tyranny of sin, from the dominion of sin. Now check this out, what he says in verses 5, 6. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, unable not to sin, right, under the dominion of sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, uh, though for a good man someone might But this is extravagant. This is God's crazy love for us. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we put our faith in his finished work. It's here where we are justified by grace through faith alone. It was something that only he could do for us. Paul, at the end of chapter 5, points to Christ, our salvation, as the new Adam, We brought that up for a reason, because the first Adam from our Genesis story, he was the first regent, the first king, and the first king failed. But Christ, the new Adam, our new king, is victorious. Let's see if this sounds familiar for us this morning. Through one act of treason, Adam brought condemnation for all men, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, is death. But through the willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, death itself would start working backwards. The result of Jesus was the justification that brings life for all men. Because of Christ, many will be made righteous. This is what sets up our reading this morning. This is a new king and a new kingdom. There is a new reality because if you are in Christ, you have been justified and you belong to a new kingdom. Delivered from the kingdom and dominion of sin. Paul is pressing this new reality down uh, for what Christ has done for us. The implications of our living in this current world. Check this out. Verse 2 says this. We died to sin. This is what it says. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ in baptism, joined with him in his death, uh, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also live new lives. Sin no longer has dominion over the people of God. He's no longer our patron. St. Augustine also said this next phrase. 
in this place. Now we are able not to sin because of Jesus, because of his justification. We are able not to sin. Now, before you go to a place of perfectionism, before you go to a place of legalism, of followers of Christ are then perfect, right? That's our thinking. That's our line of thought. No. <laughs> no. Do you know me? No. That is not what Augustine is saying. That's not what Scripture is saying. That's not what the history of Christianity is saying. That's not what Orthodox theology is saying. Not on this side of heaven will anyone be made perfect. We will all sin. We will all mess up. We will all continue to fall short. We will all need to continue to run to Jesus for forgiveness and for grace. So don't misunderstand what Augustine is saying and what I am trying to say here. This is the big idea. Our status, though, has changed. We are now free men. We are not under the dominion of, of, of sin. We are not under its slavery. Because of Christ, we are now not under its power or its rule. We are under Christ's power, under Christ's rule. We have been uh, adopted into a new kingdom. We've been set apart. This is how he says it. This is how Paul says it in verses 5 through 7. Since we have been united with Christ in his death, we will be raised to life as he was. We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when Christ died, we were set free from the power of sin. Freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom from the dominion and the reign and the tyranny of sin. Not deliverance from his presence. Not deliverance from its influence. But deliverance from its tyranny. While we are on this world before Christ returns again. Sin's presence and influence will be here, but something new has happened because of what Jesus has done. Sin has lost its power over us. You were once a slave to the patron of sin, and that was an awful slave master. It brought about death. It brought about destruction. It brought about chaos. But because of Christ, you have been set free from that tyranny. Verse 14 says this, For sin shall no longer be your master. I'm pressing home this point for a reason, because in our union with Christ, friends, uh, we have died to sin both spiritually and legally. Christ's death has become our death, and as a result, we aren't under sin's dominion. Christ's resurrection then has become our life. And so the challenge that's set forth by Paul in verse 11 should make sense. Paul is trying to capture this idea. You are a part of a new kingdom. You've been set free from that old kingdom. And because of that, he says this, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That's the old way of being. Don't do that. Oh, don't obey those evil desires. Do not let any part of, of, of yourself be given to sin as an instrument of wickedness. No, no, but, but rather give yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Offer every part of him as an instrument of righteousness. Give yourself to God. You've been set free. Now, now give yourself to God. Offer every part of yourself as an instrument of his righteousness. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find life. Offer yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Because of Christ, we have been made new. We are under a new rule and a new reign with a new way of being. 
Paul is saying, be holy. Be sanctified. Be set apart. Be different. Don't run back to sin. Sin's an awful slave owner. Our enemy was clever. Our enemy is clever. And C.S. Lewis was a prophet then and he is now, speaking of how our enemy is offering a life in this idea of instant gratification, of self, of indulgence. Offering us Turkish delights in our culture where we can create our own world, where we can create our own self, where we can create our own reality. But that is not weighty enough to hold us. It's not substantive enough to fill us, enslave us maybe. Offering dessert when we desperately need a full meal. Does your mind go to the temptation of Christ there where where Satan offers Jesus a snack and Jesus' response to him was, oh, don't you realize, Satan, that man does not live on bread alone but on the very words that come from the mouth of God. That is where life is. That is where truth is. That is where fullness is. That is weighty enough to hold me. That's what I'm looking for. You see, our enemy's knowledge doesn't go back far enough. It doesn't go back to the dawn of time when it was just God. If he could only look back a little bit further into the stillness, into the darkness before time began, he would have seen that Jesus was writing a different story for his people. One where he would be the willing victim who had committed no treachery but was killed in our stead. And death itself would start working backwards. This is the celebration. This is the excitement. Christmas came, y'all. And it changed everything. The glorious ending is that Christ and his kingdom reign. He inaugurated this kingdom when he came the first time. And we wait for it to come again in all of its fullness. A kingdom where we will know perfect peace. Where we will know perfect love where we will know perfect justice and hope, a kingdom full of grace and truth, a kingdom full of laughter and joy, a kingdom with a king that is good, benevolent and true. We pray this for a reason every week. We pray this for a reason hopefully every day. God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven because in heaven it is glorious and perfect. Revelation 22:20 20 says, "Come, Lord Jesus, come again. Finish what you started when you overthrew Satan's rebellion. Christ came once, and we look for Christ to come again and set all things right. This is what we believe. This is what we preach. This is what we pray every week. This should be how we live every week. We hold on to this new reality. We're not under sin's dominion. Sin's not our taskmaster. Because of the power of Christ, in the power of Christ, and through the power of Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin, that old tyrant. But we're children of God. We're his beloved. You with me? We have been holding in front of us several things over the past four weeks. That God is calling us to himself. It's who he is. It's how he sees us, his beloved children. He is calling us back to himself. He's calling us home. He's caring for us. He's forming us. He's teaching us. He's healing us. And then he's sending us out. Titos talked last week about us going out into a foreign world and a foreign culture. That we should be sent as courageous, as the courageous church. Not a complacent church, not a complicit church, but different, but set apart, but holy moving onto foreign soil, moving out into the dominion of darkness with the hope of light. Now, some people, when they look at the chaos of the culture and the war, 
When they look at the pain, if they consume the news at all, it's all you really see. And some might assume that we're going to hell in a handbasket. And oftentimes, uh, we might be thinking this, but we might be scared to say this out loud. Maybe God's caught off guard. Maybe he's fighting off the back foot. Friends, it's not true. God's not caught off guard with any of this. Anything that's going on right now in the world, the agendas, the confusions, uh, the ideologies, the pain, the persecution, the war, we might be caught off guard, but God is not. And it's in this space that we need, that we need to be reminded that we serve a different king, that we're a part of a different kingdom. We're set apart. We're different. We have a different way of doing life, different than the world's, with different priorities and different relationships. Different priorities and different relationships. This is Jesus' point in the gospel reading. Uh, It would have shocked everyone who heard it. It should shock us now. God is calling us to himself. That he would call us to himself as our first affection, our first love, our first yes. That we would seek him with all that we are, that our hope and our allegiance is in our king first and foremost. It's here where we can say, just like verse 11, we count ourselves dead to sin's dominion, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is our first. Because of the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can step into this life under his kingship. Slaves not to sin, but set apart for his righteousness. God is doing a work in us. He's making us holy, this unto eternal life, full life. Death itself is working backwards. Don't be discouraged by what you see or perceive as bigger than God and his kingdom. Jesus, talking to Peter later in the book of Matthew, he said this to Peter. He says it to us. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to push against it. Or in John, he says this, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light to all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. We serve a God who before time knew you. He knew me. He knew us. He knew this cultural moment here in the West. We serve a God who has freed us to become children of God, his beloved. We are not under the tyranny of sin, but under the grace of a good, good father. Whatever's going on out there, because of Christ and in Christ, God and his power are at work in you, at work in me, forming us, making us holy, making us whole. God found a way to supply the power that we lack. God found a way to supply the power that we need to become the people that we most long to be, the people who we truly are. The people who God alone can make worshipers of himself no matter the circumstance. Lovers of his son, forgivers, peacemakers, carriers of hope and peace. Moving in step with the spirit in a community of friends together toward the world. To reveal his beauty, to reveal his truth, to reveal his better way of doing life. We're not going to do that always perfectly. But we can purposely. Broken. Humble, because like Paul, we still do things we don't want to do. But forgiven and set apart as holy. There is a work that we are called to do. A work in us, a work in our homes, a work in this church, a work in this community. And God is drawing us to himself. 
He's cleansing us. He's forgiving us. He's delivering us from the tyranny of sin. He's forming us and he's sending us as instruments of his righteousness. When you live in this freedom, in the spaces that you inhabit every week, every day, when people experience you differently, by the way that you relate, by the way that you engage, they will know that sin is not your master. It's not our master. But by grace through faith, Christ is. And what a good, good master we serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you would enter in, that you would put on flesh, that you would dwell among us, that you would deliver us, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but that we would look to you, our God, our Savior, our Redeemer. In you is freedom. In you is true life. God, may we take hold of that. May, they, may we carry that with us this week. May we carry that with us this day. That all that we come in contact with may know that you are our God. That you are our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.